on? No, we're not. Uh, now we are. Uh, I think that, incidentally, for the benefit of our panel, I notice that when you speak, if you could hit the little silver panel, and if the light goes red, that actually means your microphone is on. At least that's the case in mine. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, uh, our panel for the uh, first session, uh, uh, Industry Challenges and the Roadmap Ahead, which in a way is a microcosm of our entire conference today. Uh, on my immediate left is Apostolos uh, Pulo Vasilis. Uh, Mr. Vasilis, Pulo Vasilis is the CEO of Aegean Ship Management Incorporated. On his left is Mr. Dimitrios Vastarukas, Deputy Chief Operating Officer and Technical Director of Danaos Shipping, two very prominent and well-known companies in our industry today. Uh, to his left is uh, Mr. Dimitris Fafalios, Chairman of the Technical Committee of Intercargo uh, and a member of the Board of the Union of Greek Ship Owners as well as, of course, President of Fafalios uh, Shipping. Uh, to his left, and easily the tallest man, well maybe he's not the tallest man, I think Mr. Bordley is almost the same height as Mr. Box. Uh, uh, Mr. Box, Bill Box, whom I think everybody knows, is Senior Managing for the Commercial Department and Area Manager uh, for Greece and Cyprus of Intertanko. And finally, uh, the ever-popular Mr. Tom Bordley, uh, who is Executive Vice President, Global Head of Corporate and External Affairs for Lloyd's Register of Shipping. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Uh, incidentally, there are we, we are slowly seeing more women in the industry, and we'll say more about that later because that's something that needs to be promoted and encouraged, but it is not yet a reality, is it? Well, we're getting there. Uh, I'm going to ask a series of questions, which I hope are the right questions, questions that we have all discussed among ourselves because full disclosure for the last couple of weeks the emails have been going back and forth. Uh, given the very broad remit of this conference, uh, we wanted to do a little bit of rehearsing. So if I've got it wrong and I ask you the wrong question, I'll tell you what to do. Just answer the question you're prepared to answer and ignore me. One of the great things about moderators is you don't really have to pay too much attention to us. Um, I'm going to start with Mr. Pulo Boasilis on my immediate left. And great to see you again, Apostolos. Uh, we, uh, um, we, we, need, we have heard a lot about uh, the uh, environmental framework. Uh, uh, what about implications of the ballast water treatment and socks and knocks. How are owners and managers responding? This is a very broad area, I realize, but how are you as a manager and, and an owner responding to the burdens of the, I won't say the regulatory storm, but a lot of things are coming down the road very quickly, and we're going to, that's going to be the main theme of our panel today. Tell us briefly, if you could, what you think needs to be done and what you're doing. Okay, thank you very much, Clay. Good morning, everyone, and a big, big thank you to the organizers for inviting us here today. Uh, it seems to be a great agenda, um, and 
we're kicking off today, this morning, with the, the bigger picture and what is happening around the whole uh, industry and specifically, you know, what Clay mentioned about this, uh, what I would call also a perfect regulatory storm uh, which is uh, facing us. Uh, and this in a time uh, and in a general outlook where the industry is going to be facing slower uh, annual growth. Uh, the industry is also facing a number of challenges uh, in terms of uh, increased protectionism. Uh, we've seen this uh, with, with the Trump uh, election, Brexit, more recently Catalonia. All these things are potentially negatives uh, for our industry. And on top of that, we have this uh, very intense and increasing uh, environmental societal pressure and the whole climate change uh, discussion. So, as ship owners within this whole realm uh, of, of develop, regulatory developments, we are faced with, with, a, with a tremendous uh, challenge in trying to manage not only for today, but for the ships of tomorrow. And let me give you an example. We, we were discussing this summer about some, uh, a series of new buildings. We were sitting down with the shipyard, with the designers, with the class societies, and we came up with more than 10 pages of regulations. And I, th I think this is the only industry where we have such a big volume, let's say, of regulations. And it's not only the volume, but it's the fact that they are fragmented. And this, I think, is, is for me the biggest problem. We have a fragmentation of regulations, we have a number of uh, environmental targets that we need to meet. Clay mentioned it, the ballast water, specifically looking at one aspect. We have the fuel, the, glo the global fuel sulfur cap, coming up in a couple of years. And the biggest one is, is, is further ahead with the, with the decarbonization of the industry. And if you look at all those, let's say, three examples, they are, between them, contradictory. So you try to do something to tackle one of them, and you're worsening your effect on, on, on another. And I think this is what the industry needs to get a hold of. And it's not just the regulators, it's the people who actually run it, us, the people in this room, to get a better dialogue, to get a more effective, let's say, collaboration on what is actually practical. Because you can't have the ship in the middle of all these pressures. To give the example of the, of the global fuel sulfur cap, the options that we're facing are all bad options. Whether we try to switch to new fuels, which have not been tried, they haven't been analyzed, we don't know about the quality. Even today, we have big issues on fuel quality. We have scrubbers with, with heavy fuel oil, mm -hmm. big capex, uncertain technology, side effects, possibly increasing OPEX, LNG. How practical is LNG on existing ships? I don't think so. So looking further ahead, if we're trying to decarbonize the industry, if we put in an interim solution today, because I think possibly LNG as a fuel is a, is a stepping stone, it's not the end game, looking further ahead in, in what is the aspirations to decarbonize the industry, uh, then you can understand that all our jobs to future-proof our ships uh, is increasingly 
difficult and it's, it's, it's the problems that we're facing day in, day out. We have an investment, how do we protect it? As I said, 10 pages of regulations, and this is just at the time of signing. The ship's life, you're going to get maybe another 10 pages of different regulations which need to be applied retrospectively. So you can understand that this uh, is something that has to change. And I hope we can, we can explore that during the, the, yes. the course of today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Th thank you, Pastor uh, Dimitris. Um, Following along on what Vatilos has said, and it's very, I certainly agree with you, uh, it's, it's very thought-provoking. Um, before I left the United States last week, um, I attended a conference uh, in New York, and one of the participants got up and said, well, you know that none of the ballast water treatment systems that has been type approved actually works. Now, I realize the experts here might disagree with this completely. I was absolutely floored when I heard that. In, in, that, in light of that statement, true or false, correct or incorrect, if that turns out to be, and, and remember we've all been, we're all veterans, or many of us are, of, of what happened with oil water separators, where you had the convention before you had the technology. Uh, my question for you, Dimitris, is, uh, is technology development moving too fast? What do you think? Good morning to everyone. It's morning time and this is a difficult question uh, because I think the new framework is a little bit chaotic. Uh, at the same time, it is a crucial question in a difficult era in the demanding field of shipping and uh, definitely we have to find ways uh, to cope with new challenges, all these uh, new regulations that uh, we listened before, and also at the same time to try to find ways to create new value in an already squeezed market that has suffered a lot the last decade. How can we create uh, new value? We have to see all the chain. We see that we are moving from the smart ship towards smart shipping. What does it mean? It means that we cannot work to get to alone anymore. So we have to, do, to apply some combined efforts. Now, why we need technology? We need technology because it is the, our tool to manage this new target. It is something that we need uh, to apply in our companies, in our new structures to have some positive results. We have many challenges. Uh, IT systems, uh, communication development, uh, digitization, a lot of things. Internet of things, chain block, blockchain, sorry. So now it is time to ask the question, is technology uh, moves fast? Yes, I think yes it moves faster than employees can adopt in the companies. And why this? Because there is no adequate uh, preparation, there is no adequate systems in the companies and structures. And what is the result of this? I see two options here. One is that some companies, they try to, uh, some people in general, not companies, it is a human element, 
they try to downgrade this. They try to leave it for later, to avoid, to postpone. It's not time to apply technology. We have to stay with the conventional ways. We have tried them in the past that they were successful. But today, what was successful in the past is not a guarantee for the future. So yes, technology runs fast. And companies, unfortunately, do not take the full advantage of this. It's not an easy task. But what can we do in order to be, let's say, in, in coincidence with this development, in order to get the full advantage from this development? I think that companies have to, develop, to invest, first of all, uh, not only the, uh, hardware systems. This is something that, uh, for me, it's not the first thing. It is a human element. First, we need specialists. We need people that we, they will play the new role. We need to combine the traditional way of doing things with uh, modern approaches. And for this reason, we need specialists, analysts, uh, project engineers with wider views that they will uh, accomplish the new tasks and work together with the experienced chief engineers and masters and bring the results that we need. Uh, of course, we need to invest to the hardware. That is, you know, everybody knows. But I would like just to mention here the human element again, because uh, it is not so simple as it is, sounds. Last uh, year, we ran uh, a SWOT analysis about the technology impact. We believe that the results will be amazing, will be fabulous, but instead of finding only positive things. Uh, to our surprise, we, uh, we noted more than 30 negative points that are related to the technology impact in the shipping company. And most of them were uh, related with the human element and the psychological side of people. Because there is anxiety for the unknown, there is uh, a hesitation to adopt new structures and all these things that most probably are known to you. So I think that uh, most important is to invest in this part, to train our people, to enhance a new culture in order to be able to cope with these challenges. And I close stating that uh, we need special attention because there are so many ideas out there, so many new products out there, fast development, and we have to be very careful to avoid a chaotic mess. Thank you. And uh, uh, now we are going to hear from Dimitris. Mr. Favalios, we have gone back and forth, haven't we, on, on uh, the, the, uh, uh, the question of whether ballast water treatment, which I referred to before, uh, where we're headed. Are we headed over a cliff? Can industry meet the challenge of the various requirements for ballast water treatment, including the law, the meaning the, the law as imposed by the state of California, by the United States of America, by the European Union, by the IMO, and uh, as the British say, Uncle Tom Cobley. 
uh, uh, the, uh, in addition to those things, the enforcement of the technology. What do, you, what do you think? Do you agree with the statement I made before? And remember, what I said before was a quotation. It wasn't necessarily my opinion as to what, what I think is going to happen with ballast water treatment systems. But what, from where you sit, Mr. Favalios, and you're very experienced, what do you think is going to happen? Look at your crystal ball and remember, we're not going to hold it against you if you turn out to be wrong. <laughs> Thank you, Clay. <clears throat> Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you to Capital Link. Um, the, the question that you pose is, is extremely relevant. And <clears throat> I think that we can probably sum it up in one word, which is uncertainty. Um, Despite the fact that this convention came into, initially came into force in 2004, uh, 13 years later, we are still facing great uncertainty. Um, and <clears throat> the, the, the way that this can be tackled, I think, has to be at, at, at several levels. Um, of course, it, it, can be, it has to be tackled at the, at the shipping company level. Um, but I think we have to take it one level higher um, and we have to continue our, uh, our, our dialogue with the regulators in order to produce, in order to create the most practical solutions possible. Um, if we go to the technology, the technology in this particular area of ballast water treatment is essentially uh, land-based technology where, uh, which has, has been um, marinized in perhaps a less than, a less than optimum way. Um, I think even 13 years later, and remember we've, we've faced quite a, uh, the goalposts have been changing quite often. People say, well, you know, we, we've known this since 2004. Well, not, not exactly. In 2004 we had the IMO uh, ballast water uh, treatment convention and in 2012 we had the United States requirements. In 2016 IMO revised its G8 uh, guidelines and the way that we're going, if we look forward to 2019 we may even have further changes. So the, the, the management or the, or the, or the uh, flexibility to meet these uh, changes are, are really paramount. Um, some time ago, we thought that the, that, the, that the problem was going to be that we didn't have enough dry dock space to convert the, whatever it is, 60,000 vessels in, in the world. In fact, now um, we're, we're seeing new challenges. We're seeing challenges that the manufacturers are not sure that they can produce enough systems. Um, the manufacturers are facing great issues in terms of uh, su supporting these systems, whether it's service or spares or commissioning, uh, uh, and of course, the, the the shipping companies themselves have to to create a new training uh, regime for the engineers on board who are going to operate these systems, and so that these systems are operated correctly, efficiently, and that the, that 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 the people on board can demonstrate to the port state control officers who will be coming on board and taking samples and uh, again there that's another area of uncertainty that the systems are working uh, correctly and as they should and as it said in the type approval document 
Now, you're very right, the type approval document does not guarantee that the systems are going to work. And um, uh, there, there is still huge, huge uncertainty. The, the American uh, type approval, the US type approval system is more rigorous. Uh, IMO has followed suit with the revised G8 guidelines, but then there's a still a large number of vessels uh, afloat which have uh, systems which are neither U.S. Coast Guard approved nor G8 uh, revised uh, G8 uh, approved. So uncertainty, uncertainty, uncertainty. I think we 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 are uh, uh, facing a, with 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 this convention and with others. We're facing uncertainty, and we're we're facing uncertainty because the. The technology, the technology is land-based. Um, the way forward, the way forward would be, I, I truly believe, would be for the organisations of the round table, um, ICS, Intertanko, Intercargo, Bimco, to to, uh, uh, to to speak to the manufacturers of this of this equipment, and to. Uh, persuade them to form an association, an organization with as many members as possible. And once, the, once this association is formed, hopefully quickly, then I believe that the round table can, can, can uh, have discussions with this organization and then we will get fast track, practical approaches and solutions to this problem. Well, thank you, Dimitrios. Now, now that Ad I see Admiral Fagan has returned to the room, and I, we, we, we often have done this in the past to each other, but I'm going to, I'm not going to put you on the spot, Admiral. Don't worry. Uh, that'll come. Somebody else will have to do that. But if, as it may be, and please understand, I am not speaking ex cathedra as an official of the Marshall Islands Registry. Uh, I'm just plain old Clay Maitland right now. And, but I would like to suggest and ask you uh, a little bit of a follow-up on this, Dimitrios. What if it turns out that we are sort of going off the cliff in a way? And it turn that because, frankly, it's like what British Rail used to have, the problem of the wrong kind of snow or the wrong kind of leaves with the responsibility because of the, of the delays in the commute in and out of London. Uh, if we end up with ballast water treatments that are not f suitable for purpose, but which we thought were, the train wreck, if you will, to take the railroad metaphor one step further, with regard to port state control, it has the potential for being, as they say in Washington, huge. And not only you may want to say something about that, uh, Demetrius, but also Bill and Tom, uh, as, as sort of uh, our technical experts, uh, uh, not that you're the only ones, but uh, uh, we may be heading into a situation where uh, we're going to have uh, some very, very real technical and environmental problems in terms of both the enforcement and what do you do if the treatments that are being applied both in terms of chemicals and in terms of the, the actual uh, engineering features of a treatment system turn out not to work in, in certain circumstances. Uh, the, the potential for a real uh, you know, political disaster for the industry and for the IMO 
is, is very real. Uh, I'll start with you, Demetrius, and I just want to ask you this, and I realize this is not a part of the script, but it is in a way, because I think that the situation with regard to ballast water treatments going forward, and the hints now that we're beginning to get, and then I'm beginning to hear that all is not well, uh, and it's not just going to be a cut and dried situation of you got your type approval, you install, or you build new buildings with an appropriate system. It's going to be much, much more difficult than we thought. And, and I may be wrong about this, but what do you think? What do we do then? What does the industry do then? Thank you, Clay. Well, this really was a, a convention that was really made for new buildings. Uh, retrofitting existing vessels is going to pose huge, huge uh, technical and operational uh, problems. And uh, in fact, there's going to be a huge amount of money spent with very little uh, uh, return, or, or especially in terms of the retrofits. The, the, in terms of enforcement, the, the primary line obviously is, is, through, the, is the, through the actions and the, the actions and the reactions of port state control. And um, you know, we, we, we still in, at IMO we still don't have a, a ballast water sample testing procedure agreed uh, and finalised. Um, and then this will then you know, impose uh, port state control training programs, experience, sample taking, analysis at, at reliable laboratories, uh, etc. But um, I think that we, 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 we just have to keep fighting to make this a more practical, uh, a, a more practical uh, uh, application. And um, until then, because we, we're also facing multiple uh, legal frameworks within uh, the port state uh, controls. Um, unfortunately, it, it's uncertainty, and for the and for the owners, it's a very very substantial investment um, in in uh, training, in, uh, in in equipment, uh, and and to, to have spent all of this money on equipment and still be uncertain that that the uh, that the system will not work because we didn't take exactly the right type of water which was used at the type approval uh, stage. Uh, I, think, I think this is where pragmatism is needed. And pragmatism will only exist when the, the round table and the, and the regulators, and the round table and regulators really, and the manufacturers, sit down and talk and see how we can improve things. Otherwise, you know, I don't want to be a sensationalist as sort of train wreck, but, but it, that's where we're going. Thank you, thank you. Thank, thank you very much, uh, uh, Demetrius. Yes, Bill, that's why we, uh, we're setting you up. I really no, I, ha having been set up there, I literally, I mean two words, and I think the, the battle at, at, at uh, IMO is now fought on the ballast water management. It is what it is. And what we would fight for on behalf of our members is consistent enforcement. It's, as Dimitri says, it's uncertain. We need consistency and realism in the enforcement by port state control. I certainly agree. Uh, and uh, Intertanko is in the midst of that. Uh, but again, you and I have discussed this. Um, one of the factors when we talk about this particular issue, as with so many others, is the fact that the industry is coming off a 10-year recession, the most, um, really the most severe recession in my 
experience in the industry, which, as I say, goes back nearly half a century. So uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a very, very bad 10 years for most of us. And the biggest contributor to those bad 10 years was the enormous overtonaging in many sectors of the industry. Uh, you and I have talked about uh, next time will be different. It's going to be different from now on. We're not going to overbuild. Uh, you might want to look at, the, in your answer to this question, the question is, do you, do you feel that next time will be different or that we're going to make the same mistake over again? And if so, do you think that the environmental constraints that we're talking about, and notably the, the great uncertainty on the treatment of ballast water and port state control will have an impact either constraining overtonaging or contributing to it? I know that's a stupid question. <laughs> I can tell it's a stupid question. It's a very poorly articulated one. But I'm looking at all these things coming together, and I think we all are on this panel, uh, and thinking, well, you know, how, if we have serious problems with port state control and with ballast water treatment technologically, what with the number of new buildings that are coming on them, still, still being, that are on stream or coming on stream, how do you think that will affect the, your members? Will there be uh, a tendency to hold back? Uh, thank you for this opportunity to, uh, to address this very distinguished uh, audience here. And I would like to say, talking on, on boom and bust, which is what we're talking about, uh, I have to say I'm not going to give you an intertanko voice on this because it's not appropriate for intertanko to have an opinion, I think, on boom and bust. However, I will try to give you the benefit of 40 years of observations, which started in 1973 when I was a young port agent in France and it was the very end of one of the biggest booms ever. The sad thing is I didn't really appreciate that at the time when I was 18. However, will next time be different? Maybe, maybe not. But what I would like to do today is just look at some facts. Fact, the peak order book in 2007-2008 coincided with peak spot and one-year time charter rates. Fact. Peak order book in 2015-2016 coincided with another peak in rates. Yes, too often short-term freight market movements do influence long-term investment decisions. However, fact, 1st of January through to the end of this year, so actual and estimated, 160 tankers have delivered and will deliver. 36 tankers removed or scrapped. Fact. Baltic Dirty Tanker Index in January this year, 1,000. By the end of August, it had slipped to 629. Okay, the good news is it's now recovered to around 750. So why do tanker owners do it? Why do ship owners do it? Why invest? Because there is an industry to maintain. Because also, everyone remembers the last big rate boom, 
when earnings for one voyage might have been $180,000 a day. So a profit of $4 million a month per ship. If, and it's a huge if, every ship were to hit the sweet spot for a full month. And that's the trouble with boom. Boom is short-lived. And that's my last fact. Boom times don't last. Welcome to the tanker business. Tanker owners live in hope. Tanker owners are optimists. But tanker owners are also realists. You have sky-high earnings. You may reinvest in modern ships, or you may carefully stash funds away for a rainy day. Because there will be rainy days that always follow boom times. And stashing cash away ensures that the tough times that will come after a boom don't mean bust. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. We'll, we'll get back to you. I, I hope we'll have a, a few more. We, we may have to demand a little bit of extra time or request it. But Tom, you've been given sort of the job of cleaning up you know, the confusion that I have sown. Uh, <laughs> but if you could comment on some of the things that you've heard, uh, particularly on ballast water treatments. Society, you have uh, seen, uh, you've seen your share of boom and bust, mostly bust. Uh, what do you think? Uh, um, well, well, thank you very much, Clay. And, and I, uh, like the other speakers, really welcome the opportunity to address this audience, and I'll explain why in a moment. Um, uh, frankly, I had my experience of boom and bust before I entered classification. My first 30 years were spent in the container shipping industry. Uh, which, as uh, many of you well know, uh, thankfully maybe many of you are not involved in it, in which case you're probably rich enough still to be able to observe it, um, has gone through the most uh, terrible uh, uh, and uh, life-changing consolidation process. So what we see today is probably nearly the end game uh, in terms of the container lines and container ship uh, owning. But what I wanted to talk about a little bit, because um, when uh, Clay and, and Nick asked me to talk about where we see the future and, and the future roadmap, I think it's always quite useful to look back. Um, uh, unlike Bill, I'm not going to look back to 1973, when I was enjoying myself at school. But um, uh, certainly to 2009, when I joined uh, Lloyd's Register, <coughs> in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, when uh, it was an existential crisis, for, for certainly for quite a few of the container lines. And then reflecting what I've seen in the last eight years, and for me, the biggest innovations haven't been in technology. In fact, technology has moved relatively slowly in the shipping industry. When I look at some of the ships that have been ordered this year, compared to the ships that were ordered in 2009, it's almost a, a game of spot the difference. Um, not a great deal. And by the way, that's not a criticism. That's simply uh, an observation. But where I've seen the real innovation is in um, the, the way that shipping is funded. And in addition, what I've seen is a consolidation of the expertise. And I think the reason why Greece is vying with China for the leadership spot in terms of world influence and world ownership uh, is because increasingly expertise in shipping is largely contained in this city and, and possibly even in this room. Uh, so, so my reflection to you is if, if you can't find the answer in here, I don't know when, where you're going to look for the answer, because in terms of operating expertise, um, I think probably Athens-Piraeus is, is the global centre. 
But that innovation has been uh, incredible. Uh, people thought, how on earth can the order boom of 13 and, and the more, more recent uh, mini boom have been funded? And the answer is, the global financial crisis meant there was lots of money, and cheap money, uh, looking for a home. Uh, and those people with that money um, settled on Greece as the place to invest in shipping, which is why uh, I think a combination of global money and, and green ownership and expertise uh, has left probably the biggest innovation I've seen in eight, eight years is the change in the ownership structure. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the geopolitics going forward and, and how will that change. Well, clearly, everyone expected China to be more influential, and that part of the story has come true. And uh, so what we see today is uh, strong shipbuilding, uh, although having been through a, a, mean, uh, a major dry clean, which has sorted out uh, some of the weaker from the stronger players. Uh, the Chinese, and I hadn't expected this, have gone big time for consolidation of their own shipping industry with now maybe two or three giants uh, and, and very well funded giants um, and with their own uh, building planned. Uh, and I expect that we see that story will continue and I don't see how, how that will change. So the question is, who, who were the losers if, 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 if China won and Greece won? Well, I think you see them elsewhere in Europe. Uh, and in other parts of the world, where you used to talk about the, the, the various shipping capitals of the world, well, that list of shipping capitals is diminishing, uh, and there are now fewer uh, and more prominent centres. My last 12 months has actually been spent on sort of less marine and more in other industries, where Lloyd's Register is trying to apply the skills and, and, and its expertise in the shipping industry in terms of verification, certification, and, and advising people on how to meet regulation. And I would give you a degree, if it's only a crumb of comfort, is that is, if you look in the auto industry, their problems with uh, uh, the regulation compliance has been huge. And if we're looking for how to, how to implement uh, regulation, you could have argued that everyone who drove a Volkswagen should have stopped driving it on the day they discovered that the emissions regulations had, had, and the software had been uh, fixed. But that was hardly a practical solution. It would have meant that millions of people would have lost their uh, mobility overnight. Uh, and so politically, a totally unacceptable solution. Um, when we look at the construction industry and the environmental performance of modern buildings, nowhere near what was promised. Again, uh, a combination of uh, lax regulation or, or lax monitoring of regulation has meant that in many parts of the world, our, our global building stock is not as environmentally uh, performing as it should do. Again, a political problem, but what do you do? Do you evacuate all those buildings and demolish them? Of course you don't. You try and figure out why the regulation didn't work or why the monitoring didn't work. So what I'd say about shipping, and I wouldn't wish to diminish any of these challenges, but I think all owners can do is uh, do the best they can according to the information they have at the time and hope that in the court of natural justice over a period of time, when um, the port state control or other people come on board, that the ship, ship owner will be able to document that they took what they thought were the correct decisions following the regulation at the time. And we've already seen the evidence of that taking place, uh, and I think we'll continue to have to do it. For me, I think the big issue is actually the global uh, sulfur cap, uh, 0.5 in 2020. Are we going to ask the bunker industry to effectively police the shipping industry? by refusing to sell non-compliant fuel to ships that don't have scrubbers. 
In the same way that in the UK they ask news agents not to sell alcohol or cigarettes to under 18 year olds. Um, uh, to begin with, uh, people were using their father's or their mother's driving license to, to purchase the alcohol and cigarettes, but over a period of time, enforcement sort of tightened things up. And I think clearly between the bunker industry and the shipping industry, something has to happen in order for that sort of enforcement to take place. Otherwise, the temptation not to comply uh, becomes too, too great. So I think um, in a sort of a, a mixture of reflections, I'd say the issues that the shipping industry face are faced by everyone else, and, and I assure you other industries haven't found the magic bullet either. It's a question of working with the regulators and the enforcers to make sure that whatever happens is done practically. No one has an interest in stopping world shipping, but we do have an interest in, in rooting out those who are deliberately trying to uh, bend the rules for commercial gain. Thank you. With the permission of um, Nick, can we solicit a few questions from the audience? We're running out of time, I realize, but we have run out of time. Um, are there any questions? Anything? Yes, sir. Gentleman here. Is, is, you can shout. I don't see any microphone. Or you can come up here. Other regulatory restrictions uh, also accelerate this process. As a result, our accounting standards understate real depreciation. This in turn creates unrealistic returns on capital and projections of profits. When will depreciation standards change? That's a question for accountants. This is not an accountants panel. Uh, should I rule that out of order? <laughs> Anybody want to take a crack at that? You're all in the shipping industry? I don't see any takers. I think you've got the wrong conference as well as the wrong panel, sir. <laughs> but it's a good question. Does somebody want to? Uh, well, I, I, I would just say that um, although people say that the expect life expectation of, or expectancy of ships maybe is getting shorter um, because it's not the hull but it's the machinery, and for those of you who own cars, you probably know too well that uh, they're designed, obviously, to start braking at 10 years when the body is still good for probably another 10 or 15. Uh, but that was a, a deliberate uh, decision by the industry. I don't think shipbuilders are doing that to ships. Uh, I, I don't think it's clear that the ship won't last for 25 years. Um, the, the question is, uh, clearly, some of the components will have to be changed. Um, uh, and, and we've seen that. But we see with the lack of scrapping at the moment is that it's largely commercial reasons that will lead to ships being scrapped, not technical ones. Um, I, I agree with Tom. We're looking here not at the life expectancy of a ship, we're looking at the economic life of a ship. So if you look at to take tanker owners, I, I know the tanker industry. So forgive, forgive me for uh, focusing on them, but you know, tanker owners build, invest in ships with a 25-year life. They're in the peculiar situation where tanker vetting by oil companies says that basically after 15 years, in one or two cases less, your ship is not preferred anymore. So really the decisions the owner is making is you may have a ship built for 25, 30 years, but actually its economic life 
starts getting much trickier when it's halfway through its uh, design life. So, Dr. Stavopoulos, is that helpful? We're not, we're not done yet. We have one more comment. No, just to add to that, that uh, fundamentally this is market-driven. So, you know, what we've seen is uh, over the past decade and more uh, a very large oversupply uh, of vessels. And it's a natural, uh, let's say, uh, evolution that all the, the oil mages, the charters, will apply more filters, more screening, uh, apply overage criteria, and this overage criteria uh, are even at 15 years old now. So. Uh, I think this is something which has come with the with the overordering, with with simply the higher volume of ships compared to to the the, the cargoes available, and uh, yeah, we are all uh, at fault for this. Uh, at the end of the day, now of course there is a correction. Uh, hopefully, this correction is going to continue, um, and we will see a, a more softening, let's say, of this of this uh, supply demand gap. Uh, but I don't think uh, that oil major practices are, are going to get any, any softer. Uh, I think quite the opposite, and I think this is also going to go into other sectors. We're seeing it already in the, in the container industry, uh, dry bulk, and, and so on. So uh, if we're talking about operational excellence, which is the whole theme of today, uh, and what we've been hearing you know, so far on this panel, Clay, I, I don't know what you think, but it's, it's, it's far from excellent in terms of what is ahead of us and uh, all the different uh, operational uh, issues which are arising from applying new technology. Uh, in, a, in a practical manner, um, and I think what we haven't heard so far is all the, the safety risk. Let's not forget that. That's the it. safety risk which comes from applying more environmental uh, regulations. Well, with that thought, I this is a good time to yield, yield the floor to the next panel. We're five minutes and plus over time. Let's give a round of applause, please, to our opening gun. Thank you very much. Thank you.